0: hallelujah what a savior right oh, i love that song i love to sing hallelujah he has saved me he has saved me sin and death shall reign no more in me i love to sing that i love to rejoice over that truth that's part of why we get together is to rejoice over that and i also love the second part of that song that says christ has made a way for sinners i want to declare that today to you christ has made a way for sinners like you like me he's made a way hallelujah what a savior Oh, man, it's good stuff. All right, do you have your Bible this morning? Good. Romans chapter 9 is where you need to go. Last week uh, was the easiest in a while in our study of Romans. So we saw Paul get back to the heart of his argument in chapter 9 when he said in verse 6, It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. We talked about how when we remember who we are, are and what we deserve from God, it will cause us to praise God for the mercy that he has shown us, right? Paul, last week in the text, made reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, and basically said this, he said, that's what we deserve. You remember that story about the wickedness and the sin that filled that place, and how God judged that place and brought down fire from heaven to consume that place. We need to remember that that, that's who we are as well, and that's what we deserve from God, and he would be perfectly just and right to send fire from heaven and consume us all today. But he's full of mercy. He shows us mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. In fact, he shows us grace, and he gives us what we do not deserve. And this is glorious, and we should praise God for this. We also talked about how the gospel not only brings reconciliation vertically, the gospel not only makes peace between us and God, but it also brings peace horizontally, that the gospel brings us together, makes us into one body the gospel crosses these barriers that would keep us apart, and the gospel that reconciles us to God also reconciles us together and brings us into one body. And we rejoice over that. And therefore, there's no place for racism in the body of Christ. There's no place for bigotry or prejudice in the body of Christ. The gospel reconciles men from all kinds of tribes and tongues and people and nation, makes us into one body with one Savior and one Lord and one faith and one baptism. Right? And we need to remember that this week. We're going to see a text that serves as a summary of chapter 9 and a transition into chapter 10. We'll also see a shift from the perspective, shift in perspective. In chapter 9 so far, we've been seeing things from the heavenly perspective, from the divine perspective. Therefore, we've been talking a lot about predestination and we've been talking a lot about election and we've been talking a lot about the sovereignty of God. That's the first part of chapter 9. Well, what happens in the text today is we shift gears and we're no longer going to look at it at the same subject from a heavenly perspective. We're going to start to consider it from a human perspective, from an earthly perspective. We're going to see it from our point of view a little bit. And so we're going to set aside for at least a little while the language of predestination and election and sovereignty. And we're going to start using language like responsibility and obedience and faith. And what I want you to hear right off the bat is that these two ideas are not a contradiction. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are not a contradiction. In fact, we just noticed that Paul is quick to shift from one to the other. He learned this from Jesus. If you don't believe me, read John chapter 6. Jesus can talk about divine sovereignty on the one hand, and then in the very next breath, talk about human freedom and human responsibility. And so I want us to affirm that the Bible, the Bible speaks and teaches both divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And therefore, in our hearts and from this pulpit, we will affirm both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, right? Okay, not so hardy, but you'll you'll get there eventually. That's what we're going to talk about this week. So somebody asked Charles Spurgeon one time, how do you reconcile, Spurgeon, how do you reconcile divine sovereignty and human responsibility? And he said, there's no need to reconcile friends. There's no no need to try to bring peace among friends. Peace already exists. Divine sovereignty and human responsibility are really flip sides of the same coin. One scholar said this, the question in Romans, at least in chapter 9, is, Why do the majority of Jews not believe when God seemed to have chosen them as his people? Chapter 9, verses 6 to 29, what we've studied for the last six weeks, answers the question from God's perspective. Chapter 9, starting in verse 30, on through most of chapter chapter 10, answer the question from the human perspective. So we're just going to shift gears a little bit, so be ready for that today. Let's read together uh, in the word, starting in verse 1. I want you to hear the whole chapter all together as we wrap it up today. Listen to God's Word. Hear God's word. Romans chapter nine, starting in verse one. I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were a curse separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, who are Israelites. To whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises. Whose are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all. God blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Nor are they all children, because they are Abraham's descendants. But through Isaac your descendants will be named. That is, it is not the children of the flesh who are children of God. But the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah will have a son. And not only this, but there was Rebecca also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything, good or bad, so that God's purpose according to his choice would stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Well, shall we say then, there's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, to demonstrate my power in you, that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So, so then he has mercy on whom he desires And he hardens whom he desires. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter not have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand on the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we would have resembled Gomorrah. And here's the text for today. What shall we say then? What shall we say then? That Gentiles... Who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as though it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. Let's pray together. God, we, we are so privileged. You have given us an incredible gift today. You've given us your word. And all of us in this room today have access to it. Your word it's breathed out of your mouth that's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. We have it. You've given it to us. And we don't want to take that lightly today. We want to learn. We want to hear changed by your word today. So we pray that you speak with power and authority into our lives. We pray that you open our ears to hear it, our hearts to receive it. We pray that you will be teaching us how to respond to it. We don't, don't want to be academics, intellectuals. We don't want to be merely students. We want to be followers. We want to be doers. We want to be disciples. So God, we pray that you have, our, have your way in our hearts this morning, in this place. In Christ's name we pray, amen, amen. All right, so I told you we're summing up what we've seen already in chapter nine. We're making transition into chapter 10. and I don't mean to bore you by extended readings of God's word. I pray, oh, I pray that your heart is not bored by the word of God. I pray that you don't say, oh, yawn, snore, let's get to the preaching, stop the reading. There is more value in the reading of God's word than in the preaching, Right? Because it is infallible and inerrant, it is powerful and authoritative, and I am weak and flawed and frail, errant, that that could be my middle name. Look what it says in chapter 9, verse 30. Paul starts by saying, what shall we say then? He says this a lot. He says this a lot to make that kind of transition. To bring one thought to a conclusion and to introduce a new line of thinking. That's exactly what he's doing here. He's done it over and over in Romans. So what shall we say about all that we've heard in chapter 9? What shall we say? And then he makes an observation. He says that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. It's important for us at this point to remember the context of the church in Paul's day. Right, when Paul went to a place to preach the gospel, he went to the Jews first. He went to the synagogue, and he argued in the synagogue with people who are descendants of Abraham that this Jesus from Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the one foretold in the Old Testament. He's the one you've been looking for. And he would preach the gospel of grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And he would invite people who are descendants of Abraham to believe in Jesus and follow Jesus for salvation. And by and large, the descendants of Abraham... The Israelites, according to the flesh, the Jewish people rejected Jesus as the Messiah. They rejected the gospel that Paul was preaching, and they didn't want anything to do with it. And therefore, these people who are descendants of Abraham, whose are the covenants and the promises and all of those things we read about earlier, now all of a sudden they stand outside the circle of God's covenant people. They were once the inner circle of God's covenant people, but the situation in Paul's day in the church is that they now stand, because of their rejection of the gospel, they now stand outside of that circle. In the meantime, Paul would, would be forced out of the synagogue, and he would leave there, and he would go to preach to people who are not descendants of Abraham, people who are Gentiles. And he would preach this gospel to them, and he would tell them about Jesus, who, who was God's son, who came to earth and lived this sinless life. He would tell them about how this one, this perfect lamb of God, was sacrificed, was killed on a cross. Not because of anything he had done, but because of what they had done. Not because of his sin, but because of their sin. God put their sin upon him and crushed his own son instead of them. Crushed his own son instead of us, right? And Paul would talk to them about this and he would say, salvation is, is offered to you not as, a, not as a paycheck, not as what is due, not as something you earn, but as a gift, a gift of grace, a free gift. And he would say, if you'll repent of your sins, turn away from that old life and trust in Jesus Christ put all your weight upon him and stop depending on yourself and start depending on him, then you'll be saved. You'll be adopted into the family. You'll be reconciled to God and cleansed of your sin and given eternal life. And what happened when he preached the gospel to these people, a lot of them believed. A lot of them said, this is incredible. This is good news you've delivered to us today, Paul. Thank you for delivering this good news to us. And they would repent of their sins and they would trust Jesus Christ. And consequently, the church was a majority of Gentiles and a minority of Jews. And no one expected that. No one anticipated that. It's like the whole religious world was turned upside down. All of of a sudden these outsiders are brought in and the insiders are put out. And Paul is saying, what what do we make of this? All of chapter 9 is him saying, how do we understand this? Has Has God been faithful to those people? Has he kept his promises to those people? In what way has he kept his promises to those people? Because... If he hasn't kept his promises to those people, why would we think he would keep his promises to us? How can there be any security from our perspective if there's no security from their perspective? And so he's been answering that question, right? You remember that, right? And here he's going to talk about it some more. He's going to just acknowledge that this is the case. The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness. One scholar said that is an understatement. (laughs) To say that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness is an absolute understatement. In fact, when you read through the New Testament, oftentimes if something is really bad and, and God is trying to communicate to his people, this thing is really bad, he'll say, the Gentiles don't even do things like that. <laughs> right? That, 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 that even the Gentiles have enough morality that they wouldn't do something like that. And we can read stories about the <laughs> perversions and the, oh, the sin and the depravity amongst the Gentiles, amongst the Romans, things that they would do, things that they would embrace. And unfortunately, those things don't shock us when we read about them in the history of Rome because they're on the news every night here today. And we're not shocked by them anymore. The point is, Paul says, they weren't pursuing the righteousness. They might not have been as bad as they could be, but they weren't pursuing righteousness. And they certainly weren't pursuing righteous standing before God. They were just indulging the flesh and the desires of the flesh and of the mind like everyone else was, right? He says, these people... Who weren't pursuing it. They weren't running after it. They weren't sweating to find a righteousness before God. He says, they attained it. What? How how could a people who were not pursuing righteousness, they weren't running after righteousness, they weren't looking for righteousness. How can people like that attain righteousness? It doesn't make any sense, does it? Unless you've read Romans. (laughs) If you read Romans, it makes a lot of sense because we know that righteousness doesn't come by our pursuit of righteousness. Righteousness comes as a gift that is given to us that is received by faith. That righteous standing before God doesn't come by work. It comes by faith. How was Abraham declared righteous before God? How was Abraham justified before God? By taking his son up the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice? By keeping the law? He didn't even have the law. He didn't have the law of Moses. That came later. How then was Abraham justified? How was Abraham declared righteous? Abraham believed God. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham had faith, and that counted as righteousness. And so these Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained it because it came by faith. Look what he says in the text. The Gentiles, who did not pursue righteousness, attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. Even though they didn't pursue it, they attained it. It's been the point of Romans from the beginning that righteousness before God does not come by works of the law. It comes by faith. So here's surprise number one. When we think about the landscape in Paul's day of the church, surprise number one is that the Gentiles have attained righteousness. That the Gentiles have attained righteousness by faith. All of that is surprising, right? It's not surprising to us, we're used to it, but it should shock us that Gentiles, the outsiders, have attained righteousness. They've been given right standing before God, and this happened not by their works, but by faith. All of that is a surprise to many people. So surprise number one is that the Gentiles have attained righteousness by faith. Surprise number two is in the next phrase, but Israel, but Israel, God's chosen people, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who have the fathers and the prophets who have the covenants and the temple and the sacrifices. The Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. You see the contrast here? Gentiles who did not pursue it attained it by faith. Israelites who were pursuing it like crazy, right? They were trying to live a righteous life before God. They had rules to keep them from breaking rules that kept them from breaking rules, right? Right? They built a hedge around the law so they wouldn't even get close to the law. You know, you know the whole idea about Paul, Paul says, five times I received the 39 lashes from the Jews? Do you know why he only got 39? The limit was not 39, the limit was 40. And they wanted to leave a little room for a mistake, right? They wanted to make a law that would keep them from breaking a law. This is the way it worked with most of them. I'm not saying all of them, but Paul is going to use this language as inclusive to say most all of them operated this way. They pursued righteousness by the law, and they failed to arrive. So on the one hand, we've got people who didn't pursue it, and they attain it by faith. Another hand, we've got people who were pursuing it, but they didn't attain it. This is messed up, right? This is upside down, isn't it? It's not the way it's supposed to work logically. And so he begins to explain a little more. Why then? Why did Israel fail to attain what they were pursuing? Well, if we think in the context of the rest of chapter 9, we would say, from God's perspective, this was his plan. This was his purpose. This was all part of it, and we would look at him. But that's not the way Paul answers it here. Paul doesn't talk about predestination or election or anything like that. He says, they failed to attain it because they pursued it, not by faith, but as if it were by works. He looks at them. For the reason why they did not attain it. Look at how he explains this. He says, Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Why didn't they arrive there? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as as though it were by works. So why did Israel not find righteousness even though they pursued the law? Because they went about it all wrong. They were trying to work their way into God's favor rather than trusting him to not only Declare them righteous, but to make them righteous. They were taking it upon themselves to make them righteous. They were trying to do it themselves. One scholar says, Paul may be suggesting then in this text that the law of Moses, when rightly understood, calls for faith and not just works. And I want to say a big amen to that, right? That when we encounter the law of Moses, it doesn't just build into us or bring out of us, i got to do better, i got to do better, i got to do better. One of the things the law does to me when I read it is it's, it teaches me I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. I've broken them all, and I can't do it. And so it calls me to say, oh, God, have mercy. Oh, God, is there another way? And he says, oh, there's another way. There's a way. I've made a way for sinners. And it is not the law. It is my son. Christ on the cross is enough for my sin, for my sin, for my sin. Christ on the tree is enough for me, right? Man, that's why we sing songs like that, because it's true. He says, Paul may be suggesting then that the law of Moses, when rightly understood, calls for faith and not just works. Israel's problem was that she was preoccupied with the latter, so preoccupied that she missed the former. In other words, Israel was so preoccupied focused on keeping the law that she missed out on grace she was so focused on living the right way and earning some kind of righteous standing before god that she missed out on faith and trust and mercy and grace and the gospel and and i guess my fear is do we do that sometimes here at first baptist church sunday school teachers and deacons and staff members Do we sometimes get so focused on the law and the desire to live right before God, which is, in in the right context and from the right motivation, a really good thing? And we've talked about that already in Romans, and we'll talk about it more later. But can can we miss the boat the same way? And say, I'm trying to work my way to God and miss his offer of grace? Miss his offer of forgiveness? I think we can make the same mistake. Another scholar said, Israel pursued righteousness... But she did not obtain it because she elevated the law to the central position of concern. And no one, no one has ever or will ever be saved by keeping the law. For for a multitude of reasons, no one has ever or will ever be saved by keeping the law. I'm going to say that one more time because this is central. No one has ever or will ever be saved. By keeping the law because you cannot keep the law we need a different way and god has provided that different way his name is jesus and that's what he talks about next he says why why did israel not attain what they were pursuing he said because they didn't pursue it by faith but they pursued it as if it were by works and we know it's not by works and then he talks about the stumbling stone look at the last part of this text 32 and 33 They stumbled. Israel stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. What's happening here is Paul is taking two passages from Isaiah, from chapter 8, verse 14, and chapter 28, verse 16, and he's blending them together. He's like melting them together. One of them talks about Jesus as this stumbling stone. One of them talks about Jesus and the gospel of grace through faith as a stumbling stone. Basically says there are people who encounter this message that you can't work your way to heaven. You have to trust in Jesus to forgive you the gift of salvation. They see that and they stumble over it and they fall. They stumble over it and they fall and they don't get where they were trying to go. They're trying to go by works. God puts the gospel in front of them and they stumble over it. The other text from later on in Isaiah speaks of Jesus as a stone, but not as the stumbling stone, but rather as the cornerstone. same, Same idea. Jesus is a rock. Jesus is the rock, right? And some people encounter him, and he's a stumbling stone for them. That's the way it's worked with Israel, is what Paul is saying. They've encountered him, and they've stumbled over him. But he says he's also the cornerstone. The same rock that might cause some to stumble is the rock that others will build their lives on. The rock that many will rest their hope on. The, many, the, the rock that many will put their faith in and be saved. And that's what he says at the end of it, right? Look how he blends these two together. He says, behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. It's Jesus. For some people, he's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And then he says, then he says and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. That's those who don't stumble over the rock. That's those who build their life on the rock, and they believe in him, and they will not be disappointed. This is hopeful, right? One scholar says, he says, Paul here paints a mental picture of a roadway with a great stone representing Christ placed right in the middle. And all humanity is streaming toward it. Those who are pursuing righteousness by works, righteousness by works like the Jews of Paul's day, righteousness by works by... Many people in this room today, those who are pursuing righteousness by works, refuse to see it and stumble over it headlong into destruction. That's the reality, and I want to warn you about that today. There's some of you who are pursuing righteousness by works. You're going to stumble over the rock of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of grace. You're going to stumble over that rock straight into destruction. You will not arrive at the goal you're trying to attain because you stumble over grace because of your pride. But... The scholar goes on and he says, but others come and rest on it in faith and thus find salvation. All of humanity streaming toward this rock. And some people are going to trip over it and fall into destruction. And some people are going to say, I'll sit right here on this rock. I will rest my whole weight on this rock. I'm not going to trip over this rock. I'm going to love this rock and I'm going to cherish this rock. And I'm going to stay right here on the, I'm going to cling to this rock. Which are you? It's the question today. All of humanity streaming toward this rock. you Are going to stumble over it because you're pursuing righteousness by works? If you're pursuing righteousness by works, you, you will never be saved. No person has ever or will ever be saved by works of the law. Or do you see Christ in the middle of the road and say, stop right there. I'm going to stop pursuing righteousness by works and embrace righteousness that is given by faith. Another scholar says, the cornerstone that could have been salvation for Israel has become instead a stumbling stone. The cause of their downfall. Because instead of trusting God, they're trying to please him through good works. Instead of trusting God, they're trying to please him through good works. And I'm afraid there are a lot of people. In fact, I'm going to quote somebody in a minute that says, 80% of you are not trusting in Christ, but trusting in your good works to save you. I don't know if he's right about that, but it's scary. If he's even close. If he's even close, it's scary. Three applications today. From this text, number one, I love this. God goes after people who are not going after him. God goes after people who are not going after him. And this brings hope to all of us, right? The Gentiles, the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness, found it by faith. The Gentiles who were not looking for righteousness found righteousness by faith. One of my favorite preachers says it this way. Gentiles did not care about the law of Moses. They were not pursuing the righteousness of God. And in God's mercy, they found what they had not pursued. And then in the next breath, he says, they found nothing. God found them. God found you. God found me. We were not looking. We were not pursuing. By his grace, he pursued us, and we were found. This is the Christian message. We, were, we once were lost. I once was lost. But now am found. do love that? That God God goes after people who are not going after him. That's my story. And I believe that's every Christian's story. Nobody's testimony goes like this. Well, I was just looking for God. And I was pursuing him like crazy. And I finally found him. If that's the way your testimony goes, you don't really understand what happened before you started looking for him. Because before you started looking for him, he came looking for you. And the reason why you were looking for him is he already found you. Like, that's the way it works. He goes after lost people. He says that, right? I came to seek and save that which was lost. We sing, Jesus sought me and bought me with his redeeming blood. I am thankful that God goes after men and women and boys and girls who are not going after him. Because if he didn't, if he waited for men and women and boys and girls to go after him, nobody would be saved. We have all gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. There is none righteous, not even one. And he comes after the unrighteous and he seeks out the lost to save. I love that. God goes after people who are not going after him, and this speaks hope to all of us, and this speaks hope to the whole world. Second is a question. Whose righteousness counts? In this whole matter of right standing before God, whose righteousness counts, and whose righteousness are you counting on? Your righteousness? Are you hoping to stand before God with your resume? And all the good things that you've done in one hand, and yeah, your mistakes in the other, but... You know, the the good things outweigh the bad things. No, they don't. You don't even have any good things. (laughs) Even your good things are bad things, apart from faith. Whose righteousness counts and whose righteousness are you counting on? Paul knew he couldn't count on his own righteousness. Listen to his words from Philippians chapter 3. For we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. That's him speaking as a believer now. He says, we put no confidence in the flesh. And then he recalls his old life. He says, though I myself have reason to put confidence in the flesh also, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. You catch that? He says, if there was ever somebody who could count on his own righteousness before God, Paul says, it was me. And listen to the next the next phrase. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's that's a really interesting word. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's what I want for you. Not a righteousness of your own, but a righteousness that comes from God by faith. Whose righteousness counts? Paul's righteousness? Righteousness. Your righteousness, my righteousness, whose righteousness are you counting on? Your righteousness or God's righteousness, Christ's righteousness given to you by God's grace. This is a scary, a scary thought. R.C. Sproul, great scholar and a great preacher says, The multitudes in Israel sought the righteousness of God through their endeavors, and they missed the kingdom of God. And that same error is deeply ingrained in churches all over the world. I venture to say that at least 80% of Christian church members in our country believe that they can get to heaven through their good works. I want to declare to you today that no one has ever or will ever get to heaven by their good works. It does not, it cannot, it will not happen. You need a righteousness that does not come from works of the law, but a righteousness that comes from God by faith in Jesus Christ. And he offers that to you as a gift. He doesn't say it'll cost you this much or it'll it'll do this. You've got to do this and then you get it. He says, I'll give it to you as a gift. Receive it. Receive it by faith. So at the end of the day, here's Jesus. Here's the gospel in the middle of the road. It's a big rock in the middle of the road. And you're running at it. And you're texting, and you're looking at your phone, not paying any attention. All of a sudden there's a rock. The rock in the middle of the road, what are you going to do with this rock? you Are going to stumble over it because of your pride? Because what I'm telling you today is you can't work your way to heaven. You're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You're not, you're not pretty enough. Whatever it is, you're not enough to get to heaven. I'm telling you that today. You can't do it. But God can. He can do it for you. He can help you. He'll change you. By His grace, here's the rock in the road. You're gonna stumble over and say, "I can." You don't know. You don't know me, preacher. I'm squeaky clean. I'm really good looking. I'm really smart. I've got it together, preacher. Oh, I know you. I know you, because I know me, and you're just like me. You may think you have it all together. You got nothing together. You've got nothing. To pride tells you you do and so you'll stumble on that rock and you'll fall headlong into destruction or do you hear this gospel today that god is willing to credit to your account the righteousness of christ if you'll trust in him if you'll rest your way are you ready today to say i'm sit on this rock this rock right here i'm not gonna stumble over i'm sit on it i'm gonna rest on this rock i'm believe in this rock scripture at the end of the day today says he who believes in him will not be disappointed He who trusts his own works to get him to heaven will be disappointed. But the one who believes in Jesus will not be disappointed. So believe in Jesus today. That's what I'm getting at, right? Sit on the rock today. Trust him today. Let's stand together and pray. God, you're so good to us. You go after people who are not going after you. You seek and save the lost. You raise the dead. Bring hope to the hopeless. And this is hope for all of us. We were lost and you found us. And I pray that in the same way you sought me when I was a little boy, I wasn't going after you. I wasn't pursuing righteousness. I wasn't pursuing you. I was living according to the flesh. Whatever that looks like for a 7-year-old boy, that's what I was doing. And you came after me and you pursued me. You changed me and I give you all all the praise for that. It's your work, not mine. I pray that you'll do that with men and women. In boys and girls in this room today and i praise you that you have i praise you that you've you found a lost one this week and we're going to hear about that i hope but i pray you do it in this moment now you go after them i thank you that righteousness is not produced by us that the righteousness that counts is christ's righteousness God, I pray that the righteousness that we are counting on is Christ's righteousness. If there is this self-sufficient spirit in us, if there is this uh, pursuit of righteousness by works of the law in us, if we are trying to earn our way to you, God, I pray that you rebuke us in that, that you show us that we're making the same mistake that Israel made, and that we will not find the righteousness we're looking for that way, and that you bring us back to simple, childlike trust salvation and for our hope. God, I pray that you help us deal with this rock in the road today. This rock in the middle of the road that is Christ. I pray that we will not stumble on it, but that we will believe that we will rest on this rock and not be disappointed. God, have your way in Christ's name.